1: The way Detective Dermot Dwyer puts it, it's like the guards couldn't not arrest Ian for a whole list of reasons.
0: Number one, he lived very
2: close to the scene. He had a history of violence uh, towards his partner and he would a lot of sketches not a copter of scratches, he would a lot of sketches in his hands.
1: Ian's confusion about where he'd been over that weekend, Marie Farrell's sightings, Ian's alleged confessions.
3: No, put all those things together. If we didn't... Arrest Mr. Bailey, it would be serious negligence on our part.
1: But Ian says the guards didn't really have evidence of anything. He says this was all just a big show to help them pin the murder on some West Court blow in.
2: They knew what they were up to. They knew that they were um, trying to uh, stitch up an innocent person. I think that um, they, they thought that they might be able to get me to confess to a crime that I didn't commit. The whole thing was a creation. That was encouraged by members of the guards to try to put me in the frame
4: this is west cork an audible original series i'm jennifer ford i'm sam bungay and this is episode seven the arrest <laughs> It was 9.30 a.m., Monday, February 10th, 1997. Jules Thomas was in the kitchen when she saw the guards coming up the driveway. We'd had the guards around asking questions for quite a few weeks on and off before, as, as did a lot of people. And so they were just here again. They were looking for Ian. Jules sent them down the lane to the studio cottage where he'd gone to write for the day. An hour passed. More guards began to show up. Then Ian reappeared in the back of a patrol car.
2: So I I lifted up my hands and showed her that I was in handcuffs. I I stuck my
4: head
3: in through the the window of the car and said, you're making a big mistake.
4: Yeah. The guards remember this exchange differently. In their report, Jules did stick her head through the car window, but said to Ian, remember they have nothing on you and I'll swear to that in court. I love you, I love you. you. you, you. Absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. I didn't say that. Total fiction.
3: You see, they just put in all this
4: crap. When Jules says, put in all this crap, she's talking about the written accounts of that day, statements and memos. Back then, the guards didn't record interviews, they just hand-wrote reports for suspects to sign. And though they did sign their statements, both Jules and Ian say they're full of errors. Errors aside, the accounts show that that day, the guards put their case to Ian, laid it all out, revealed to Ian what they had to see how he'd react. Handcuffed in
1: the patrol car with three detectives on the way to Westcourt Garda headquarters, Ian remembers things as being hostile from the start.
2: There were, there were, there were three police officers in the car, two were in the front and one was in the back.
3: There was one in the back, right, yeah.
2: Who was jabbing me in the arm, saying, you better get your story together, you better get your story together. The driver of the car um, said, even if we don't manage to pin this to you, you're finished in Ireland. He said, you'll be found dead with a bullet in the back of your head in a ditch. So it was. It, it, it was a, It was very heavy, heavy and menacing.
1: Two detectives took Ian to an interview room. Ian says it just looked like a normal office with desks and filing cabinets.
2: I had different officers, but they came in at different stages, and one in particular, um, uh, I think a sergeant, maybe a, made a. Oh, I'm going to get to you, making a fist, and and uh, I thought I was actually going to be struck at that particular point. And the same officer subsequently put his um, leg on the table, uh, sat at a table, and, and almost tried to stick his crotch into my face.
1: Ian says the guards kept needling him about being a fish out of water in West Cork.
2: It was mentioned to me that, oh, do you think an Englishman is, is going to get away with this over here? There, it wasn't overt xenophobia, it was covert. Um, uh, but I felt it. I felt it was that.
1: The guards have always denied roughhousing Ian, the crotch in the face, the snide remarks about him being English. Detective Dwyer wouldn't go
4: into details of the arrest with us, but he did say that they showed Ian the same respect as anyone. Ian picked the name of a lawyer from a bunch of business cards they had at the Garda station.
2: In fact, actually, he advised me not to say or make any statements or say anything. Now, I didn't take that advice because I always believed that if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to hide.
4: Looking back now, do you, would you
2: have done it differently? Do you I, don't that? Know, well, I don't know, maybe. Um, I, I tend not to do retrospective um,
4: uh, hindsight thinking. But it's also possible that Ian's pride had a role in deciding to speak. Did he engage with these detectives, in part because he thought he'd run rings around them, and because he kind of can't help himself.
2: And I, I must say, I'd never met the likes of the people who were, were interrogating me, and I suspect that they'd never met anybody quite like myself. In what sense? Um, Well, I just think that they were used to possibly dealing with um, a different sort of type of person, maybe maybe possibly less educated people.
4: It's hard to imagine Ian being intimidated or coerced into saying anything he didn't want to say. He never seemed phased by our questions. He sort of settles in, closing his eyes to concentrate. And he was generous with his time, but it was always on his terms. At a certain point, he'd say he was tired, that his frontal lobes were going, and he needed to recharge. That would be our cue to wind things up. In other words, in our conversations, he was measured. The guards would come to view Ian as calculating. A neighbour of his told us that a detective would describe dealing with Ian as being like playing a game of chess. But just six weeks after the murder, the guards had a different idea about Ian. They'd taken statements that he'd been going around confessing to the crime. Maybe they thought he was one of these guys who was proud of what he'd done and wanted to boast about it. If Ian did kill Sophie, he was behaving recklessly, checking up on witnesses, inviting detectives for coffee, revisiting the crime scene.
1: And this was something the guards wanted to put to Ian. On the day Sophie's body was discovered, how did Ian get to the scene so quickly? How did he know where to go? We know that Ian got a call from Eddie Cassidy, a reporter at the Cork Examiner, at 1.40pm. Eddie asked Ian to go and see what he could find out about reports of a body.
2: He well, I mean, to... I'm, 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 I'm a seasoned reporter, so, I mean, I, I, I just responded to, to uh, Eddie Cassidy's request.
1: Eddie only had vague directions, a circle on a map, not a pin, and he knew it was a woman's body that had been found. Ian says he then stayed in to listen to the 2 o'clock news – which carried a report about the body of a foreign national, possibly French. If you know where you're going, it's a 10-minute drive from Ian's to Sophie's house. So let's imagine Ian listened to the news for just five minutes. Then let's imagine it took him another five minutes to get his things together for Jules to get her camera, grab their coats and hit the road. Because at 2.20pm, just 20 minutes after the news began, Ian was standing at the end of Sophie's driveway, the first journalist on the scene. It doesn't leave a lot of time for wrong turns. Ian said Eddie Cassidy's call and the radio report weren't the only things he was going by. He knew there was a French woman in the area.
2: I was aware that Alf Lyons had a French neighbour.
1: Alfie Lyons, who lived next door to Sophie. With that information alone, it would have been a good reporter's hunch to head there. But then Ian said he wasn't heading there.
2: I wasn't sure at all that that was who was being talked about. And I was driving. I was going originally going to go to the post office because the post offices tend to know
1: what's going on in a locality. Ian says he was on the road to the post office when he ran into Shirley Foster, Alfie Lyons' partner who found the body, and she directed
4: him to the scene. But that's not what Shirley says. She says they didn't meet on the road to the post office. They met on her laneway, which is a dead end, that Ian had already turned down towards the crime scene. Shirley would later tell the guards he seemed to know where he was going, that she got the impression if she hadn't wound down the car window and signaled to him, he wouldn't have even stopped. We have no reason to doubt Shirley's sincerity on this. It's just whether she remembers it right. Bear in mind, Shirley had just found the dead body of her neighbour. She'd be forgiven for not recalling everything with perfect clarity. But if Shirley is right, then what to make of it? What did Ian know about Shirley and Alfie's French neighbour? We're going to replay a piece of News Archive. You've heard this already. It's recorded just days after Ian's release from custody. The reporter asks him straight.
2: Did you know Sophie Tuscan de Plantier? I didn't know her in as much that I'd never met her, but I had seen her once and she was pointed out to me.
4: This happened when Ian was up at Alfie Lyons' house doing some gardening work a year or so before the murder. But today, Ian tells it differently. He says Alfie didn't actually point Sophie out to him. He just told him that his French neighbour was in town. The sighting happened later, when Ian was coming back down Alfie's laneway, which runs to the back of Sophie's house, past her kitchen window. And I saw
2: somebody in the house who I think may have been her from a distance. I'd never seen a, uh, her at any close range.
1: It was all through a window and...
2: Yes, and no no detail, no... Um, I I wouldn't have known who she was. I wouldn't have been able to pick her out, for instance. um, I wouldn't have known her. So
1: when you saw her picture in the paper subsequently, that was the first time you'd seen her face? I didn't ring any bells at all. During the arrest, the guard asked Ian about this sighting. The account reads, "'I saw her once. "'I was gardening up at Alfie's last year or the year before. "'What did she look like? "'To my recollection, she was plain.' This makes it sound like Ian did get a good look at Sophie. But Ian says the guards took it down wrong. He wasn't talking about that day. He was talking about what he thought when he saw her passport photo, which ran in the papers after the murder. Maybe Ian's recollection of things is totally accurate. Maybe he knows a little more but doesn't want to say because he's worried it looks bad. Then there's another explanation, that he knew where to go because he was returning to a crime scene that he'd only recently fled
4: which is the line of inquiry the guards were pursuing. That Ian had left the crime scene around 3am and staggered down to the coast road, where he was spotted by Marie Farrell. Remember, Marie had given a statement saying she'd seen a man three times the weekend of the murder, wearing a long black coat. So we already talked about one of these sightings, the hitchhiker. Marie passed the man hitchhiking in her car early Sunday morning, near where Ian was staying at the Murphy's house. This sighting served only one purpose for the guards. If they could establish it was Ian, it would help confirm he was the man from Marie's other two sightings. Those other two sightings would potentially connect Ian to Sophie. Here's what we know about them. On Saturday afternoon in Skull, Sophie visited Marie's shop. Marie told the guards that at around the same time, she spotted the man across the street, standing in front of the butcher shop. Was he following Sophie? Sophie? And was it even possible that this man was Ian? Well, there was another witness who told the guards that she'd seen both Ian and Sophie in skull at the same time.
3: Well, there isn't really an awful lot to tell. I mean, I they
4: weren't together. I didn't see them together at all. Scull local Carrie Williams was in town shopping with her two young daughters that day. There were loads of people out shopping and she came out of the spa and literally walked into us. Or she, we walked into
3: her. We bumped. Who? Sophie did. I clocked that he was on the other side of the street. This was in the days where he he had his long black trench coat and his big boots and his staff. I always noticed him.
1: Ian told us he was in Skull that afternoon, but he didn't see Sophie. He said he wouldn't have recognised Sophie even if he had seen her. But he did say to us that it's possible that Kerry saw him in town, which means that it's possible that at some point on Saturday... When Sophie was in Skull, Ian was on the other side of the road. Then there was the third sighting, on the night of the murder, on the coast road, down by Kilfada Bridge. Ian had no idea who was making these statements about him to the guards. At the time, he wouldn't have even known who Marie Farrell was. But he knew the spot they were talking about, and he says that Kilfada Bridge didn't even make sense to him.
2: So, you know, this is, this is wild rural... Uh, island, and I've often, and, then, and maybe you've done it as well. If you drive along at night in a place where there aren't any lights, when you pass somebody, unless you knew that person, uh, it'd be very difficult to identify them. Um, you know, you're, you're gone in a flash. You, you, you know, you might have seen somebody. You might that person might have a hood on. Um, you might not even know if they're male or female.
1: We've driven this coast road many times at night and wondered about this sighting. It's dark. There aren't any street lights. But it was a full moon the night Sophie was murdered, so maybe not as dark as other nights. And Kilfadder Bridge comes just after a bend in the road, so Marie may have slowed down, and as she turned for a crucial instant, the headlights might have lit up the black-coated figure like a camera flash. So maybe it's possible. This was the important sighting for the guards, because it would put Ian out of the house and near the scene of the crime, not at home in bed with Jules, his alibi for the night of the murder.
4: What Ian didn't know, not until later that evening, was that in the midst of his interrogation, Jules was being arrested too. It was, it was just a complete shock. Detectives had stayed with Jules at the Prairie, going over her movements the weekend of the murder. Suddenly he said he was arresting me for the murder of to- Sophie de
3: Plantia. I was actually being accused as well. I was in shock. I mean, you feel feel completely sick. You feel like somebody sledgehammered you, actually. You know, it's just such a thing out of the blue when you've got absolutely nothing to do with a certain crime and you're suddenly being accused of it. It's it's very, very nasty being treated like a criminal. I got bundled into the car and they kept saying, oh, we have witnesses, we have witnesses, and I said to her, Witnesses for what, you know? Oh, he was seen jumping in a hedge and he's all scratched with thorns down at the cross there. Which cross? I said, what on
4: earth are you talking about? You know, I mean, it was just all madness. By the time Jules arrived, the entrance to the Bandon Garda station was crowded with reporters. Footage played on the news that evening of Jules being led into the station with her coat pulled up over her head. Why did they say they were arresting you? They were they it's on
3: my charge, that's murder. E, for murder. I was arrested for murder. They didn't say that when I was being interviewed though.
4: Did they ever give you a scenario in which you were you know, if they arrest you for murder, did they ever give you a scenario where oh, this is how we, we think you were involved, I think we think you killed her or helped kill her. No. We haven't turned up anything to suggest that the guards ever really thought of Jules as a suspect. Certainly none of the questions she was asked that day suggest that. They were interested in her only insofar as she had a connection to Ian, so it's hard to see this move of arresting her for murder as anything other than a tactic, an attempt to intimidate her. Jules said the guards had a good cop, bad cop routine going, flitting between one scenario where Jules knew about the murder and was protecting Ian, and another where she was a naive victim who'd been tricked by him. The guards asked Jules whether she'd ever seen blood on Ian's clothes. She said no, except for when he killed the turkeys, those Christmas turkeys he'd had a fight with. she put his bloody shorts in a tub to soak outside under the drainpipe. And they asked about something else,
1: a bonfire. The guards knew there had been a bonfire at the back of the studio cottage, the cottage down the lane from the prairie, where Ian went to work and where he sometimes
3: went to sleep. Maybe they thought he'd, that he'd burnt some of his clothes that had blood on. I think that was the implication, which was ridiculous. The guards had search warrants for
1: the prairie in the studio where Ian worked. So just as Ian and Jules were being interrogated that day, detectives were combing through the properties, which meant scenes of crime detective Eugene Gilligan was back in West Cork.
5: We're automatically thinking...
1: What's in the bonfire? Detective Gilligan and his partner settled down on their haunches and began sifting through the bonfire remains with spoons. In in the kits that we have, we had a
5: spoon that size. And you're sitting down, you make yourself comfortable, and you're literally doing that. Scraping away away ash. Scraping away ash like that, sitting down like this. Scraping away and watching what's coming out. Shoe eyelets, clothing buttons, jeans... Uh, other bits of, tiny bits of, a lot of bits of bed clothing. There was uh, parts of the mattress of beds, the sprung mattress. There was shoes. Straight off, we were aware that a lot of items
3: had been deliberately destroyed for whatever reason. Jules says there had been a fire. We just gave the place a really big clear-out because there was too much rubbish in there. They did burn a mattress... Um, Oh, I think it was a stinky old mattress. Mice had been living in it. You know, it really was bad. But, she says, they didn't burn any clothes or
1: shoes. And crucially, both Ian and Jules say this was an old fire. Jules said they'd had the bonfire in October, November time. When the guards asked Ian, he said no later than early December. Which isn't what their neighbours the Jacksons say. Delia Jackson said she'd been out walking with her mum on or around Christmas Day when they smelled the smoke and heard a fire coming from Ian's backyard. They didn't see it, but they talked about it. They had a conversation about how strange it was. They weren't thinking about the murder. They didn't think it was suspicious. They just thought it was a curious time of year to have a bonfire.
3: And I would have no problem swearing on any, any book to say that uh, there was a fire in his back garden
1: at the studio during the Christmas period. No, no doubt about that whatsoever. The reason Delia is so sure is she was working in London at the time and only home for the Christmas holidays. When Jules testified about the fire in court, her wording was that she didn't know about any fire around Christmas down at the studio. The studio was 100 metres down the road. Was it possible that Ian had had a bonfire and not told her?
3: No, he was up here all the time. No, he wouldn't have bothered to have a bonfire outside. He wasn't that sort of person who'd bother. He's a stasher rather than a clearer, you know, he hoards things, really. Either way, while
1: a bonfire on a suspect's property might be suspicious, it's not incriminating in and of itself. The guards were looking for hard evidence in the remains of the fire,
4: and they didn't find it.
5: Dad was disappointed that we had to stand up and say
4: there was nothing of evidential value. Nothing of evidential value. The bonfire was like so many other things that day. At first glance, it looks bad, very bad even. But get up close and scrape away at it with a spoon and you come away with nothing. Gilligan's team moved through the rest of the property. Fanning through books on a shelf, Gilligan came across some photographs. I found
5: evidence that there had been a serious physical domestic dispute
4: between the suspect and the owner of the property. Photographs showing the damage Ian had done to Jules during a fight.
5: She had serious head injuries because they found photographic evidence. Evidence of domestic abuse.
4: And they were pretty graphic. They They were. The guards were already well aware Ian had a history of violence against Jules. Remember, back on the day that Sophie's body was discovered, when Ian had turned up at the crime scene, the local guard there knew. Ian had recently assaulted Jules.
2: He said because of the knowledge of that um, uh, incidents with Jules that he, he nominated me as a suspect.
4: There was one incident,
2: right? No, there were a, there were a couple. Uh, there were three, I think, altogether. No, I mean, we, we, we've been together now for through thick and thin for nearly 25 years, which is obviously a lot longer than a lot of marriages um, sustain. I mean, uh, I I don't offer it as a defence for my own behaviour, but it it is a reality that it it isn't uncommon. But, I mean, um, I think if you look at, say, Richard Burden and Elizabeth Taylor, there was a similar thing going on with them, that they would be very much in love and then they'd drink and then fight and then they'd finish up making love again and cycles of... um, uh, But that doesn't mean that the person is then going to go on to commit a, a horrendous crime...
4: This is what Ian does. Whenever he talks about the assaults, he tries to put it all in some wider context of domestic violence in Ireland or draws parallels like this with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. He says he's not trying to minimize it, but that's exactly what he's doing. We're going to talk in more detail about this later. But the question for the guards that day was whether Ian's violence against Jules made him a stronger suspect in this murder. Jules claims the guards tried to show her images of Sophie's body. Perhaps trying to draw a link in her mind between Sophie's murder and Ian's violence against her.
3: I refused. I said, "No, I've got a visual brain. I don't want her image. I've got nothing to do with this. Why should I have that in my head? I don't want to. I don't want to see, the, the how what a ghastly murder she had."
1: The guards say they didn't show her any photos. Jules said she never felt threatened by Ian. He never made her fear for her life that she'd felt much more afraid of her ex-husband, who used to kick her with his hobnail boots. Jules told them Ian wasn't a violent man. He just lost his rag sometimes when he drank. He had drunk whiskey, she told the guards about one of the assaults. Whiskey has a terrible effect on him. I cannot trust him when he drinks whiskey. And the guards turned that around on Jules and said, well, maybe Sophie was a victim of that same alcoholic rage. They told her they knew Ian drank a nagon of whiskey, a hip flask-sized bottle, that night in the pub in Skull. Maybe that's how he got it into his head to kill Sophie. Could Jules help them establish a link between Ian and Sophie?
4: They asked Jules about the route that she and Ian had taken home from the pub on the night of the murder past Hunts Hill, a lookout point. The detectives knew that from some points up there, you could see Sophie's house.
2: You, you could see a lot of twinkling little Christmas lights and flashing lights in a long distance across the bay
4: was one of those twinkling lights, Sophie's. Jules told the detectives that she stayed in the car because she was tired and it was too cold. But Ian got out of the car to take a better look at the view. According to the arrest reports, Jules told the guards that when Ian got back in the car, he talked about being able to see Alfie's house, Sophie's neighbour. He said there was a light on over that way. And he said he had a bad feeling about something that was going to happen. Do you... Do you have you had
2: premonitions? Well, I have hunches about things, you know, instinctive hunches about things as a journalist.
4: But this this seems like um, not in this case. Is that what you're saying? You didn't have a premonition in this case. No, no. I mean, so uh, just for the record, you don't remember saying anything about a premonition. I know. Jules says she has no memory of saying this to the guards, and Ian says it's all nonsense. You couldn't even see Alfie or Sophie's house from where they stopped. This strikes us as a little strange, that surely you couldn't know that you didn't see something from a particular spot unless you'd been looking for it. But Ian says it's because he remembered where they'd been that night and went back there later to check. We went up there too, and for the record, there's a winding track over Hunts Hill. From some spots you can see Sophie's, from some spots you can't.
1: The guards went over the Hunts Hill question with Jules again and again. They picked apart every detail of her account on the night of the murder. Did you go to one pub in Skull or several pubs? Was Ian with you the whole time? What did he drink? What was he wearing? And then at home, are you sure Ian came to bed with you? What time did you turn out the light? Was
3: he there all night? It was grilling, grilling, grilling about... They went over and over the same points hundreds of times trying to catch you up. Jules claims the guards used outrageous
1: methods to try to get her to talk. The guards deny it. But she says that after hours of interrogation, one guard walked into the room and proclaimed, he has admitted it, Ian has confessed, which, of course, he hadn't. She says they told her if she didn't confess to what she knew, she'd go down with him. Was there ever any moment that you sort of think, maybe?
3: Well, I think they say it, you, you've, you, you're sort of 12 hours, or say 11 hours in and they say it over and over again to you. You can almost brainwash people into believing things. So there was a, a moment of doubt. There was, but it, it didn't last very long, I can tell you, you know. Was, there was no... Oh, goodness me, if somebody had murdered someone, I don't believe they'd be able to behave absolutely normally the following morning. Do you? Do you think they could act that well? And he's useless at lying. I just know what he was doing that night. All
1: through the day, Jules had been insisting, just as Ian had that he was with her all night on the night of the murder. Then, in the final few hours, she changed her story. The last statement they took from Jules told it differently. She has officially contested this statement. She says they twisted her words and made things up. But it tells another story of that night. Ian laid his clothes out before he came to bed on a cane chair outside the bedroom. His shirt, his jeans, his long black coat... Then they went to bed, but Ian tossed and turned and Jules estimated about an hour later, which would be about 2 or 3am, she felt Ian get out of bed. Jules didn't think much of it because he often got up in the night. She fell back into a deep sleep and the next thing she knew it was morning and Ian was bringing her coffee and she noticed a fresh cut on his forehead. Jules said she said almost none of this, including the thing about the cut but she must have said something about Ian leaving the bed because of what happened next.
4: While all this was happening, Ian didn't even know Jules had been arrested. He was sitting in a cell, recuperating between sessions with a mug of tea, when he says a guard came in to tell him.
2: They come in and say, we we have her, and she's said that she's reluctantly accepted that you have something to do with this.
4: Meanwhile, the lead detective, Dermot Dwyer, was preparing to interview his suspect. It seems like this was Dwyer's M.O. He waited more than a month before he went round to meet Ian at the Prairie for mince pies. And it seems like he had a similar tactic during the arrest to get all his ducks in a row first and then go in to speak to Ian.
2: He's overseeing the thing from outside. I mean, he's the lead detective. And he was the officer who told me, I'm going to play short kill for... Uh, asked me, when did I play poker? And then subsequently said, I'm going to play short kill for the bridge in the early hours of the morning. So I knew that he was the uh, evil mastermind from my subjective point of view.
4: Dwyer put it to Ian The Jules says at some point he left the bed and returned the following morning with a mark on his forehead. Ian denied it. So what has happened then? They've, Jules has told them that you
1: got up in the night and they've come in and told... And confronted I, I, you I
2: don't that. know, I don't know, I can't... Um, can't I can't remember.
1: Because it sounds... It sounds like from from the uh, from the statements that Jules tells the police um, that Jules tells the police that you did get up during the night. I
2: don't know. Is that does is that in any of her statements? Yeah. Right.
1: But you don't remember them coming in and telling you that Jules has has Jules has
2: said I, it I, No, I can't. I can't remember that.
4: In the interrogation, Dwyer pressed him on it, put it to Ian that he left the house. At which point, Ian admitted to getting up. He said he had an article to finish.
2: Well, I did get up that night, and I did, um, and I did some writing here on on this kitchen table. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what time it was. I had a deadline for a story the following that I thought had to be delivered on the Monday morning, and I hadn't finished that article. And what I did do was, I got up and I uh, certainly at, it was nothing unusual for me particularly to get up at maybe three or four o'clock in the morning. If, my, if I, I woke up and my mind was alert and alive and I had something to write about and come down and write.
1: Even if you've had a lot to drink?
2: Um, well, I hadn't had that much to drink that, that night. Um, I mean, I'd had a couple of pints and I might have had a whiskey or two, but that was over the course of the evening.
4: When we asked Jules about how she could be so sure of Ian's innocence, that the guards were wrong about him, she said it was because of this article.
3: Because I just know what he was doing that night. He was here writing on this table a newspaper article. It wasn't there when we went to bed. When he got up, he was quite excited about what he'd written. And he said, look at this, you know.
1: The way Jules says it to us now, 20 years later, it sounds like such a strong, clear memory. Like it's etched in her mind that Ian wrote an article during the night on the night of the murder and showed it to her the next morning. But back then, just six weeks after the murder, there's no mention of the article in her statement. Jules just talks about him getting up in the night. According to the arrest notes, it was Ian who first mentioned the article. The written records have it that Ian said he just remembered the thing about getting up in the night, as if the guards jogged his memory... During his arrest, when they put it to Ian, he says, Oh, yes, I remember now. But that's not what Ian told us.
2: So, I mean, I was probably being overly honest because I, I didn't need to say
1: that. But so did you think initially maybe don't say that? Because if I do, it'll make me look... It'll...
2: Well, I, I, initially, I don't I think I saw it as being relevant.
1: OK, but you um... did remember... Oh,
2: yes, yes.
1: OK, but you thought, I'm not going to say that, it's not relevant, they're only going to jump on it.
2: Um, I, I'm not sure why. I, I, I mean, I was possibly overly... I, I didn't need to say it, you know. Um, but I did. I, I may have not said it initially. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think I, I did acknowledge it subsequently.
4: Ian said he'd done two things by the time Jules got up the following morning. One was to write out his article by hand. The other was to type it up. To type it up, he had to go and use the typewriter, which was at the studio house, that place he'd been using as an office where the bonfire had been, 100 metres down the road. Well, I I got
2: up, I don't know, maybe between three and four. And I came down and I sat at the end of the table and I had my notes and I I hand-wrote a a rough story and then went back back to bed.
1: How long were you up for, do you think?
2: I don't know, maybe half an
4: hour. Ian says he didn't go to the studio house until the next morning, but the statement taken in custody gives the impression that it all happened during the night. It reads, Sometime after going to bed, I got up, did a bit of writing, the kitchen. I then went down to the studio. I'm not sure what time it was, but it was dark. I have no watch. No,
2: I didn't say that. I, went, I, I did subsequently, on the morning of the 23rd, go down to the studio to process the story. I didn't leave this house. I was in here, okay. the Prairie Cottage, yeah. all night. And I didn't leave. I went down to the studio house initially to... Um, was it on the... To, to, I, I was thinking to get my uh, copy typed up.
1: Whether Ian left the house in the night or 9am, Ian says it was to walk 100 metres down the little lane from the main cottage to his office a trip that was routine for him. After 12 hours of questioning, the guards had made it 100 meters. It was still two and a half miles away from where Marie Farrell said she saw Ian walking at Kilfada Bridge that night, and it wasn't enough for the guards to hold Ian any longer. Both Ian and Jules were released around midnight. Years later, one detective would describe that day as the apex of the Sophie Toscan de Plantier investigation. Everything that happened before built to this point and everything that came after trailed away. There would be further developments in the case, but they would all just take the guards further away from their hopes of a prosecution. This is as close as they got. It might not sound like much, but that night it may have felt like something. To be able to say that for a portion of time between Sophie's last phone call to her husband Daniel and her body being discovered the next morning on the roadside, Ian Bailey their prime suspect wasn't where he said he'd been, that he had no alibi.
2: Well, I mean, I can see what they're suggesting. They're suggesting that I got up during the night and uh, because it's only 36 minutes, is it? I must have walked up there, committed the murder and then come back down.
4: 36 minutes is the time it takes to walk along the road from Ian's house to Sophie's house. If Ian had got up shortly after going to bed with Jules that night, maybe he went down to the studio... Or maybe, the guards were implying, he kept walking, still buzzing from the whiskey, making his way by moonlight towards the French woman's house.
1: Would you go for walks in the night?
2: No, not particularly. Well, I mean, you think about the time it was Christmas, it was cold.
1: Do you think, did you think uh, that that was the end of it, do you think?
2: Um, I don't think I thought that, Um, I knew that the way the thing had been constructed, in effect, it really had left them no way out, and I knew that, that this was going to be, this was going to go on.
1: West Cork is an Audible original production.
4: Written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced and sound designed by Kristen Muller, Alex Trajano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moher. West Cork is edited
1: by Mike Olive. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers. This is Audible.
0: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation.